0: Well, good morning, everyone. i better take the mask off. <laughs> I nearly forgot. Okay. I hope everyone is good this morning as we continue in Romans chapter 8. Um, as Jason read, verses 18 to uh, to 30. Uh, but before we start, let's pray and uh, just give uh, thanks to God and, and seek his help. Um, Lord, without your help, um, these words that we're reading are just just that they're just words Um, we thank you father that you've uh, given us understanding uh, in part uh, of them and we uh, we thank you that you've given us because of that uh, great hope in your promises and in your words and uh, help us to cling to them and help us father to have ears to listen to these words today and um, you know if if our consciences are pricked in some way through uh, through one or two of these verses father help us to uh, follow the lead of the spirit and um, and do your will Uh, and these things we pray. Amen. Well, on the 8th of um, May, 1945, it marks a very special day because it marks a day where millions of people took to the streets of London to celebrate the German armed forces um, seceding to uh, uh, or agreeing to give up their arms. It was a day of of, of great celebrations. There was roaring and dancing and singing and whooping and hollering in the streets. And uh, people were jumping into the fountains on Trafalgar Square and just crying and singing all at once. Even the king and queen had to appear at the balcony eight times that day, seemingly, as the crowds bustled down towards uh, towards Buckingham Palace, just crying out to see their, their sovereign powers. And it seems that at the end of every season of, of suffering or strife, there is a cause uh, for great joy. And we won't hold that against anyone. Uh, the Apostle Paul, though, was a man who suffered an awful lot. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 23-28. Paul here, almost taking pride in the amount he had suffered, he says, Are they servants of Christ, he said? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labours far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death five times i received the hands uh, five times i received at the hands of the jews the forty lashes less one three times i was beaten with rods he says once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i was adrift at sea On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers at the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers with false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. How do you think Paul felt about all the sufferings that he had been through? And he's well qualified to speak about sufferings, isn't he? Well, Paul, in the first verse that we're going to look at today, has come to the conclusion, and we read, For I consider, he said in verse 18, that the sufferings of this present day are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is continuing his train of thought really from what Jason preached on last week in verses 8:17 that we are co-heirs with Christ and listen provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him John Stott commentator puts it like this he says sufferings and glory are married they cannot be divorced but Paul pushes it a little bit here he says that these sufferings of course cannot be separated from the glory but Paul says they also cannot be compared I love when Scripture comments on Scripture. And if we track down to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says this, commenting really on these verses as well. Paul said, so we do not lose heart. Through the outer se- though the outer self is wasting away, that's our bodies, our inner self, Paul said, has been renewed day by day. Now listen to this. For this light mom- momentary affliction, Paul calls his sufferings is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, Paul says, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul compares the suffering and the glory in terms of of weight. He says one of them is just a light affliction, sort of, ah, that's nothing really, compared to the eternal weight of glory. There is a world of difference between the two descriptors there. And another way Paul compares them, he said, one lasts only for a short while, it's transient, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. But the other lasts for eternity. Now, considering the amount that Paul had suffered, it's a remarkable statement that the glory that is to come will be so much greater than the suffering. And look at all Paul suffered. None of us probably in this room are listening have suffered like Paul has suffered. And yet Paul was so expectant and so looking forward to the weight of the glory that was to come. Paul's saying it's nothing to be compared to these sufferings today. They're nothing really. Now Paul is not belittling, belittling suf- sufferings either. Don't get me wrong. But Paul is saying that the glory is the winner. It's a no game. And it's got two aspects, this glory. Paul kind of touches on the physical side. He says that our outer side or our outer self is wasting away. And we can all attest to that, especially as we get older. We get new pain and we groan in different ways as we get older. But we're looking for the redemption of our bodies, new, sinless bodies. There'll be no more backache, no more illnesses, no more COVID-19s. All these things will be gone with the body. Paul also alludes to a spiritual side. He's saying that we will see and share in the glory of God. That's what he means by the revealing of the glory. We'll see that we will be conformed to the image of the Son ourselves in our own bodies, physically and mentally. Paul now stands back a wee bit, and he takes this kind of big cosmic perspective of the creation and of believers, and he kind of tries to show how the two of them are connected in this framework. We'll start with verses 19 to 22 and before we read them we can just marvel and i love watching nature programs and i love the natural history programs and, and i love nature itself but i just marvel at the great mechanisms that god has put in place you know to keep this world ticking over um i love going out watching birds and fishing on the lake and seeing all the beauty of a trout spots and all the beauty of a bird's plumage when it turns into the wing, into the sun and Uh, just the beauty of a mountainside lit by sunlight. All these things are reflections of of God's beauty himself. But at the end of the day, if we look carefully and think carefully about it, I think most people would realize that there's something not quite right with the world. Something seems to be broken. Amidst the beauty, there is terrible brutality and brokenness. We often try to ignore this and push it to the back of our mind and not think about it. But I think especially Christians think about the brokenness of the world in in different ways perhaps to people who don't believe in God do. Um, We look at natural disasters, uh, diseases, wars, people's wickedness to people, um, pains, sufferings um, and and we see that the world really is is not what God intended it. God of course made it, we read in Genesis 3, as good and we can see now that it's not good. (laughs) It's definitely not good even though it has facets of good, overall, there's a lot of suffering. Paul shows some light on this in verses 19 to 22. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. Now, for the creation was subjected to futility or frustration. Not willingly, Paul says, but because of him, that's God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, Paul says, until now. Now it's very common in the Old Testament to personify the creation. We can see many examples of it. In the Psalms, Psalm 19, maybe being a, a firm favorite of Christians, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. You see, when Adam and Eve, though, sinned, God and rebelled against God, he had to judge them. God cannot have fellowship with wickedness. He also judged the creation. He subjected, we see here in these verses, to futility, to frustration. It would produce thorns and thistles and Adam would have to go out by the sweat of his brow and earn a living. There There was no more easy pickings. All he had to look forward to was return to the dust on the day that god would take him back death would claim him it was a very very sorry state that he had fallen from there are four ways we can see in the verses here 19 20 21 and 22 that um, paul personifies creation notice in verse 19 he says the creation waits with eager longing verse 20 20 the creation was subjected to frustration or futility Verse 21, the creation will be set free from bondage. The idea that the creation is a prisoner. It's just dying to burst out to be free to something better, but it can't because it's subjected to bondage. And verse 22, the creation has been groaning and is groaning still. But even amongst these verses of judgment, do you notice a bit of light? Do you notice a bit of hope there? The creation is groaning, Paul says, but... It's not a meaningless, pointless groaning. It has a purpose. Just like the pains of a woman in childbirth are not pointless pains, they're not meaningless, they always have a great outcome, the joy of new birth, of new life. Notice in verse 20, the key verse there, I think, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God has judged in hope, and when God judges in hope, that's great. What is this hope? Verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, the creation itself is looking forward to the glorification of the children of God. The creation will not remain broken and brutal like it is at the moment, it will one day be freed, released liberated from its futility and, and pain and decay and suffering due to sin. The Psalms and Isaiah chapter 65 paint lovely pictures of, of this day of liberation, the day of the Lord. It says that the world, in the, in the, the earth and the heavens, there'll, there'll be a new earth and the new heavens. There'll be a, a new beginning. There'll be no more weeping or no more will the cry of distress be heard. The wolf and the lamb you know, shall graze together. And even the lion, it says, will eat straw like an ox. The creation will finally be liberated into glorious perfection, just like the sons of God, just like God intended it from the beginning, because he said at the beginning that his creation was good. Sin spoiled, sin thrashed, it polluted, it destroyed everything, and it still does. But it will not always be like this. The creation has a hope, just as we have a hope. And this is the hope that Paul describes in verses 23 to 25. Paul continues, And not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, just like the creation, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, Paul says, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience you know i think when this covid 19 thing is over the first thing i want to do with my family is go out for a good bit of grub in a restaurant and often when we sit down to have a meal the first thing you'll have naturally enough will be your starter and this really whets the appetite it gets the juices going for the main course doesn't it but sometimes when <laughs> when the main course is a bit slow and coming we can get a bit impatient can't we I think this is the idea that Paul here is getting at. He says, so it is with the Spirit, really. He says that the Spirit, of course, as we know, is given to every believer, every adopted son and daughter as a deposit, as a guarantee. It has a meaning. It's not meaningless. To show that there is something bigger, something fuller to come in the life of the Christian. There is future revelation. There is future glory as the sons of gods to be released or to be revealed. Paul says that because we have the Spirit, we have the first fruits. Now, what does he mean by this? I think this is a reference that Paul uses to the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. Remember, the feast was a sort of an expectant looking forward to the fuller harvest that would follow this feast. And because we have the first fruit, in other words, (coughs) the spirit, sort of the first fruit, so to speak, we have as well an expectant longing and expecting hope for something fuller, something more excellent that is to come, which would be revealed to us, and that is the glory of God. Believers, if you moan in prayer, if you moan when you look at the broken creation, if you groan with your sufferings, don't be distressed. Don't resent groaning like that, because it is the Spirit working in you, affirming with our spirit that we are the children of God, that there is something better out there waiting for us, that even though this life is broken, there is a new fixed life to come. A life in Christ. Lived out to a fuller degree than even we're living now. And because we're living in these in-between times of, you know, it's we've got a taste, but w- we don't have the full meal quite yet. <coughs> even though we are adopted sons, we wait for what? We wait, what is the fuller taste? Well, we wait for a more deeper child-father relationship at some time in, presen- in the future. And of course, we wait for the redemption of these bodies that are also groaning. We know this. Paul says in 24, he says, for in this hope, we were saved. The hope of glory and the hope of redemption. The hope of new bodies, the revealing of sons of God. All of it is the same. It's all glory. We are saved in this hope. Now hope, Paul says, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Paul says that in this hope we were saved, and because we don't have this hope yet, we hope for what we do not see. We have a taste of it, but we don't have the full picture of it. In 25 he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now this is where we have to exercise our faith in life, isn't it? After all, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's that word again, hoped for. It's amazing how many times I came across it in my preparation skimming through the New Testament for this sermon. Hope is everywhere. And Christian hope is not a sort of I hope, I win the lottery sort of hope. It's a certain, sure hope in the promises of God. And we're convicted by these things because it is the Spirit inside us who is convicting us, who's giving us this hope. And he won't mislead us. So we exercise our faith in the waiting. It's a picture of Christian perseverance. Uh, Commentator Leon Morris puts it nicely. He says, you know, that when we're showing exercising in the waiting, he says, it is the attitude of the soldier who in the thick of battle is not dismayed, but fights on stoutly, whatever the difficulties. Every hope that we have in this life fades. The hope to maybe go up the corporate ladder to the very top. (laughs) the hope of being a great athlete, the hope of being a great artist, the hope of being a great musician, any kind of hope or aspiration that we have, even though they're, they're not entirely bad, they will all disappear. They're all transient, Paul says. But this hope, the hope of being revealed as the sons and daughters of God, that is a glorious hope. And that glory, or that hope is eternal. It is concrete. It is the only hope worth fighting for. Now Paul moves on in verses 26 to 30, to give us three reasons why we can wait with patience and confidence for the high point of the hope which we hold to. The first we find in verses 26 and 27. And the first point I'd like to make is the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We read in 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches hearts—that's God—knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, I think most of us, if we were honest, would would wish and and, and pray for we pray for better prayer lives. We often. Uh, we often pray a hurried prayer on our knees before we're going to bed for five minutes. We're just too tired. Sometimes we forget to pray. Sometimes we feel we didn't pray well. Sometimes we feel we just don't know what to pray for. We're, we're confused. You feel, man, I prayed for that person so much and I prayed for maybe that situation so much. Maybe, maybe God is getting tired of my prayers. And we know this is not true, but at the back of our mind, we have these thoughts running through our heads. Well, Paul identifies with us as well. He says that, yeah, we are weak. Meaning the limitations of our, of our, of our human condition. We, we don't have full insight into God's will. We don't know what we ought to pray for, as we should. But Paul says that the Spirit intercedes. And just like the Spirit gives us hope, now we see the Spirit giving us help, this time in prayer. And he intercedes between the Father and us. Now, p- the Spirit is a gentle friend. He knows our shortcomings in prayer, our inward struggles between, you know, the spirit and the flesh inside, our strugglings and our sufferings in the world because we're Christians and he he identifies with us. Paul says, with unspoken groanings of his own. Paul says that these groanings are too deep for words. And the good news, Christians, is his intercession is always 100% effective. It never fails. We may not know what to pray for in a particular situation, but the Spirit does. And he prays on our behalf and with us. And because he and the Father are in harmony, like a beautiful piece of music with one another, the Spirit's prayer on our behalf is pleasing to the Lord. It's in accordance with his will, Paul says. How comforting. So keep praying. I, heard a, I, I read a beautiful, um, a beautiful post on social media by someone in this church during the week. It said, Pray hardest when it's hardest to pray. Isn't that good? Pray hardest when it's hardest to pray. When we're going through, you know, our, our life of suffering, and we do, and we will, it's all part of the territory. When we're going through the fog of suffering and we don't know which way north and south is, the Spirit is there, helping us, pulling us along, giving us courage, praying along with us and for us, helping us to wait eagerly and to, perse- to persevere in the faith. Isn't that wonderful? What a great picture of the Holy Spirit we have in this passage and in this entire chapter. Oh, that we would cry out more to the Holy Spirit, even in prayer, and just thank Him for His intercession on our behalf. Just like the Son intercedes for the Father when we sin, in prayer, the Spirit is there right by our side, interceding for us, helping us in our weakness. What an intercessor He is. The second reason why we can wait with patience and hope for the high point of this hope that's going to be revealed to us, or revealing the the revelation of glory in the sons of gods, is God is constantly working for the good of those who love him. God is constantly working for the good of those who love him. Verse 28 sheds some light on this. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this has been a great comfort verse for many Christians right down through the centuries. It's a tremendous verse. It's a a verse all about God's providence, the way that God is sovereign and that he is in charge. He governs everything in the world with care and affection. Just a few comments. Do you notice there, who is this addressed to? Yeah, it's addressed to those who love God. In other words, believers. And what's the subject there? I think the subject is the all things. And these all things include the groanings of verse 23, the sufferings of verse 18. All pain and all pleasure are included in this all things. Now, this verse is a wonderful verse, but it's often misunderstood. And I often remember when I was a a new Christian reading this and and, and not understanding it and and being really confused by it. Um, I think a lot of people sort of get this meaning out of it. You know, you hear people saying, don't worry if you lost your job. God is a better one around the corner for you. Well, maybe he doesn't. Maybe God has decided that you've gone far enough in this job, that you were getting too fond of going up the corporate ladder, that you were losing sight of him. Maybe you were getting too fond of money or not putting enough time into the family, and he, <laughs> he decided to bring you down a rung or two. He decided to refocus your eyes on him again. Or we might he- hear people saying, well, don't worry, um, if you know if your engagement didn't work out god has a better partner around the corner from you maybe he doesn't maybe god has not blessed this engagement so that you can complete work for him in the future that was best suited to a single person the problem with this verse i think is many presume that the good is often a material good and sometimes it is but often it's not you see god sees the big picture Remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Remember what Joseph said to his brothers when he finally met them after they sold him off as basically a slave and he ended up down in Egypt? You would imagine that he would har- harbor bitterness all those years, but he said to them, talking to his brothers, As for you, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God allowed Joseph to be a victim. Of a certain level of sin and suffering, suffering and misery, so that, he so that his eternal plan—in other words, that the promise he made to Abraham, that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through his line, would would remain true. If Joseph's family had, re, you know, if Joseph had remained up up in the promised land, he would never have had the food or the resources to feed his family when they did come down to Egypt looking for help. And it would have thwarted God's plan, but no, God is in charge with care and affection for all things in the world, working all things to good. This is important. God works all things in the life of his people for good according to his purpose. Now, this purpose is believers' ultimate good. This is their completed salvation, conforming to the image of the Son, bringing them home in glory. That's the good. That's all believers good. Douglas Moo commentator agrees with this and says the ultimate good is God's glory. And he is glorified when his children live as Christ did and attain the glory that he has destined them for. The third point I'd like to make or the third reason why we can wait with patience and confidence to the high point of the hope that we hold to, is God has a great plan for bringing believers to glory. This is to be found, I think, in verse 29 to 30. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in these final few verses, we have great confidence that we shall see glory because our God is sovereign. And through the Holy Spirit, he will lose no one on the way to heaven. We all love Philippians 1.6, and we always quote it to one another. And I am sure that he who, is, who began a good work in you is willing to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These last two verses show us the plans that God has drawn up for bringing this promise about. Now these verses that follow are deep and I don't claim to understand them fully, but let me try to give you some encouragement anyways. There's some terms here. We can see a picture here. There's almost like a chain here and we have one, two, three, four, five, whatever terms here. The first is for know. This seems to indicate more than just knowing something beforehand. It denotes, as John Stott says, a personal care and affection. Thus, when God knows people, he watches over them. And when he knew the people of Israel in the desert, what is meant is that he cared for them. Another commentator writes that foreknew has the same meaning as foreloved or loved beforehand. So, God, through his choice, has loved a people. And these people, then whom he foreknew, whom he loved, his chosen people, he has predestined them be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might, that's Jesus be the firstborn among many believers or many brothers this predestined simply translates to decide beforehand so that this people who God has foreknown, foreloved he has predestined, he has decided beforehand that they will be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This conforming to the image of the Son of what Paul is talking about in verse 17 and 18 we saw, that the glory of God shall be revealed to us and in us. John start again, he says that God's eternal purpose for his people is that we should become like Jesus. John's John start again, I think it's worth repeating, God's eternal purpose for his people is that we should become like Jesus. We get great encouragement from 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And because we shall be conformed to Christ's image Christ then is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. Christ is our elder brother uh, still being our head. Verse 30, Paul continues along this chain, and Paul says, those he predestined, he called. Um, This calling is is not like a general gospel call. It's said to be an effectual call. In other words, when God calls someone, as he called Lazarus and said, Lazarus, rise, Lazarus got up. Uh, God's calling of of, of sinners is always, always positive. It always has a 100% efficient outcome. It has been likened almost to a summons into a relationship with God because all God calls those that he foreknew and predestined will respond in faith to the call and then these people will be justified, declared righteous we've seen this in Romans in the past weeks and those then will be glorified glorification here glorified is interesting because Paul writes about it in the past tense, as if it's happened but hang on, we haven't been entirely glorified have we? but I think what Paul is getting at here is that this glorification, this glorifying, is from God's point of view. He's seen it happen to us already. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 3. And we, all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So then, when God calls us and we turn to him, he removes the veil from our face, and we understand how blind we were, and we behold his glory. And through his spirit, who gives us hope and help, he delivers us to glory, conforming us to the image of his son for his glory and for our joy. And he loses no one along the way. What a great assurance of our faith this is. So what can we take from these verses? There's a lot of theology in them. Well, as we can see anyways, one thing we can take from them is, it seems to be the lot of the Christian to suffer in order that we may be identified with Christ, our older brother. But let me ask you, how should we suffer differently from those who are not Christ's brothers? You know, this world is an equal opportunity misery giver, and it it lumps suffering on both believers and non-believers. But how should believers cope differently with suffering? Should we be like maybe the Greek Stoics, Longo, who just put on a stiff upper lip and pretend that everything was okay? Show no weakness in adversary? Should we have a kind of a a constant holy smile on our faces despite our internal struggles? No. Maybe the purpose of some of these struggles is that the Lord is trying to teach you something. He needs maybe you broken in order that (laughs) you may listen to him. It's good to be broken if this is the case. David in Psalm 51, he recognized this. Remember when he wrote, the sacrifices sacrifices of God, he said, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But once again, it's not brokenness without hope. It's not all despair. Despair is what the world had. The Christian does not despair. What do we do in time of sufferings? The first thing we do is we persevere in the hope. When we're floundering through the fog of struggles, we persevere with the spirit. We have this hope. It's as sure and steady as an anchor. He will get us over the line. We have infinite resources, unlike the world. We have a counselor. We have a helper. We have a teacher. We have a friend. We have a redeemer, an advocate, an intercessor, a certain hope. We have a family. A family of fellow brothers and sisters that we can confide in and who can support us. How do we access these resources well through word to the prayer and through fellowship the second thing we can do which should make us look different from the world is we can share the hope paul said in romans 5 3 listen to this he said we rejoice in our sufferings now i don't hear many people saying that <laughs> as a course day by day paul says we rejoice because it builds christian character the world we saw on VD, VE Day celebrated because they were joyous that something was over, the suffering was over. But the Christian is called to be joyous while we're suffering, amid the suffering. Amid the suffering, we're called to be comforters. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, speaking about God, who says, Who, God, comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We are asked to be hope sharers, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. We are asked to be persuaders. 2 Corinthians again, chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're asked to be ambassadors. Second Corinthians again, chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you, says Paul, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is the weight on every Christian's heart that we should call into that we should call out and invite people into the kingdom of God so that Jesus has another brother or sister um, so that they can glorify him they can shout up to the heavens with great praise and glory to God for what he has done and because we are brothers and sisters of Christ we bear his image, we share in the desires of his heart and that is mission, to make the father known for his glory and our joy Let's pray. Father God, um, it's, 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 it's the weight on our hearts here, Lord, that many more should know you, uh, that many more should glorify you, that many more should come to a knowledge of the truth, Father. Uh, we thank you that one of the ways that you bring people to a knowledge of your truth is by these very words that Paul has written, by these very words that you have inspired him through the Spirit. Father, help us and help everyone who perhaps is not taking any heed of these words at this present time, help them to take heed of them. Help these words to speak to their hearts, Father. Help us to take them more seriously and to ponder them, Lord, on a deeper level. For our joy and your glory, we thank you in your Son's name. Amen.